Good morning. Scripture reading this morning is in Haggai chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 20. While you're turning there, just wanted to mention how glad we are, Kevin, to see you back and in the pew and looking forward to having you next week. And uh, just for the congregation, Kevin's been so generous with his uh, time and uh, attention, helping some of us other guys, uh, you know, learn the ropes for preaching and uh, giving feedback. And we're just really grateful for you, Kevin. So thank you. Haggai 2, verses 20 to 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. How's that going to work? We've likely asked that question before to ourselves, to our spouse, maybe a friend. Usually it's in response to a game plan or a strategy that's tough to envision working out. I asked that question to myself a couple of years ago when we were moving. With the generous help of our friends and family, we were able to move much of our furniture on our own, but we were not going to tackle the piano on our own. That's a job that requires professionals. Except the professionals that showed up were not very convincing. First of all, there was three of them instead of the standard four, one on each corner. One of the movers was in a wrist brace. The other forgot his steel-toed boots. And you can see where this is going. I tried to ignore it. I tried to trust them, trust that they knew what they were doing. Perhaps it was more like wishful thinking. Because when I was in another room cleaning, I heard from the living room, no, 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 crash. The guy with the steel, without the steel-toed boots, of course it had to be that guy, tried to catch the piano with his knee. He missed. The piano had fallen backwards onto the hardwood floor, had gouged his toe open. The drywall had a big hole in it, and the future, one, and the future of the 100-year-old piano was in doubt. Thankfully, after some stitches, a call for a couple of extra movers, and a piano retuning, things turned out to be okay. But I think I was justified in asking the question, how's that going to work? 
Their game plan was tough to envision working out, as I discovered. In the last section of Haggai 2, the end of this prophetic book, we have another scenario where, from our perspective at least, this may be a relevant question to ask. How's that going to work? Compelled to respond in the face of rebuke, the people have repented of their self-interest and of their apathy, and have returned to rebuilding the temple. A temple which is pretty underwhelming when compared to Solomon's temple. The Lord understands the people's discouragement and promises a better day is coming, where God will shake up and reorder the institutions of the physical and spiritual realms, the heavens and the earth. When the glory of God in the midst of his people will be incomparable, Solomon's temple will be an afterthought, a footnote. In the meantime, the people are to work diligently with courage and strength, for God is with them. And now, after broad messages of admonishment and encouragement to the people, Haggai's words here in our passage this morning become very personal. It is a hyper-targeted message, not for the people or the priests, but for one person in particular. It is a message, a promise to the governor, Zerubbabel. Despite being a small nation of remnant returnees from exile, despite being surrounded by hostility under constant threat, opposed by political lobbyists and neighbors alike, despite being ruled by Persia without a king of their own, despite the old temple lying in ruins and an underwhelming new temple, despite all these things, God, through Haggai, promises Zerubbabel that the governor will be like a signet ring, a symbol of honor and authority. Really? Zerubbabel? A signet ring? How's that going to work? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would seal it to us. Lord, that you would uh, speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit and that the name of Jesus would be made great in our eyes and in our minds and our hearts. And so we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Zerubbabel and the rest of the people have heard God's promise delivered through Haggai in the first nine verses of chapter 2 that he is going to shake the heavens and the earth, rightly realign the created order. And what comes next is a direct message from God through Haggai to Zerubbabel. It is a specific promise for the governor's ears. It is an answer to the question, how's that going to work? God, very directly, very matter-of-fact, tells Zerubbabel what he is going to do, how he is going to do it, and how Zerubbabel will be involved. God is going to disarm the nations, he is going to defeat the nations, and then he will rule the nations. First, God says he is going to disarm the nations. And this is a promise with a couple of components to it. Let's look at verse 21. 
Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. God is going to strip the nations of the two tools they require and use to govern their people and accomplish their purposes on the international stage. Policy and compliance. Throne and strength in this passage, we might call them policy and compliance. Policy, a course of action adopted by a ruler or by a government. Compliance, the act of bringing others into alignment with the policy. Both good and helpful tools given to us by God. Tools that reflect the wisdom and order that come from him. But tools that have also been corrupted by sin, by fallen people. Whether it's war crimes in Ukraine, civil unrest and oppression in China, or energy shortages in Europe, mankind continues its trend of corrupting God's good gifts. Policy and compliance, wisdom and order, the gifts given to us by God. So God is going to overthrow the throne of kingdoms, the throne being the seat from which the governing head issues policies and laws, edicts and decrees, declarations and statutes. This could be the house of commons for a democracy as we're accustomed to. This could be the throne room of a monarchy or perhaps the inner circle of an autocracy. God is going to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. The policy branch of government will be removed. And then God will deal with their compliance arms too. He says in verse 22, I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. The strength of the kingdoms is the means by which governments carry out their laws and statutes. Here in this passage, we see that chariots and riders... Military units are the tactics at a nation's disposal, the tools in the toolbox used to achieve compliance. In, all, in our culture, these can be positive or negative tools. Sometimes they are incentives, carrots. Buy your dog tags early and you'll get a discounted rate. Get a home energy audit and you'll get a credit on your hydro bill. More frequently, these are deterrents, sticks. Forget to declare something at the border and you'll get hauled into secondary. Don't provide the receipts, you'll get audited. But because of sin and corruption, these helpful tools can and have, in some cases, go too far and they become dis destructive in many circumstances. Wielding cruelty, bringing hurt and devastation, sometimes oppression. God is going to address this. He is going to disarm the nations. And after he has disarmed them, he is going to defeat them. God is going to defeat the nations using one of his textbook tactics. Confusion. Look at the end of verse 22. 
and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. Haggai's contemporary, Zechariah, who also prophesied during post-exile times, would write this. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Panic and confusion, infighting to the extreme, chaos. Of course, God has used confusion and panic to judge other nations at other times. He confused the people's language at Babel. In Exodus, we read that God threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their wheels so that they drove heavily. When the Lord used Gideon to defeat the Midianites, it says in Judges 7 that the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And so here, God promises Zerubbabel that the nations of the world will be defeated, every one by the sword of his brother. God is going to disarm the nations, defeat the nations, and then rule the nations. And he promises to do this through the lowly and the unassuming Zerubbabel. God says through Haggai in verse 23, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. First, God is going to make Zerubbabel like a signet ring, an illustration meant to depict honor and authority. Today, we transmit our authority through many means. Pin codes, password phrases, secret questions, maybe a face scan. But perhaps the most timeless method continues to be the handwritten signature. And I have a confession for you this morning, kind of embarrassing. I have forgotten how to handwrite. I either jot things into a notebook or I type. And I do these things exclusively. And you know what they say, if you don't use it, you lose it. I have lost handwriting. But I can still scrawl out my signature. I have forced myself to remember that and to practice based on the importance that it carries. My signature transmits my authority. It is how I authorize my participation in a mortgage, my will. It's how I open a bank account. It's how a doctor might authorize a prescription, if it can be read. In a similar way, the signet ring was used in ancient times to communicate the authority of a message. Set on the front side of the ring was a hard or a semi-precious stone with the seal inscription in reverse, and the seal on the ring served as an individual's official stamp, literally a stamp of approval. The stones chosen for the ring would also convey the honor and the authority that was associated with the ring bearer and with their position. It's interesting 
that Zerubbabel's grandfather, Jehoiakim, was recognized by the prophet Jeremiah as the signet ring on God's hand. But because of his rabid self-interest, including, if you can believe it, decking out his own home in cedar paneling and using oppression and injustice to acquire wealth and honor, God said that he would tear Jehoiakim, the signet ring, off of his right hand and give it into the hand of those who would seek his life. And now God, in his great mercy, is telling his grandson, Zerubbabel, whose people have repented of their self-interest, that he will be like a signet ring, a beautiful symbol of honor and authority. Secondly, though we, in human terms, would recognize Zerubbabel to be an important person, the governor of Judah from the line of David, we are reminded that he is God's servant who has been chosen by God. Zerubbabel is here in this position at this point in time because God wants him to be. I have chosen you. It is a reminder for all of us that regardless of our name, our family tree, our occupation, our interests, any power we may have, our anonymity, our wealth, perhaps our humility, our gifting, or our faults, that we are God's servants and he has chosen us. God is at work in us because he has chosen to be at work in us. And because he has chosen Zerubbabel, God is going to endow him with honor and authority. Despite everything that appears to be going sideways, Judah and her oppression, a remnant population, the modest construction of the new temple, opposition from neighbors and politicians alike, a leader who is not a king but only a governor under foreign rule. Despite all these things, God says, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, and make you like a signet ring. Now at this point, we may want to stop and ask that question. How's that going to work? Because Zerubbabel seemingly becomes less prominent in the pages of Scripture after this. Not more prominent. He never did become a king. Some commentators have speculated that he might have even been bumped off, perceived as a threat, and then eliminated. And what do we know about his descendants? Abiud, Eliakim, Zadok, Achim, Eleazar? Doesn't seem to be much there. The disarming and defeating of nations doesn't sound like it ever happened either. Judah would continue to be under Persian occupation, followed by more of the same from the Greeks and the Romans. There were more edicts and decrees, laws and statutes, enforcement and compliance, honor and tributes to be paid. The temple that the people finished under Zerubbabel didn't last, at least not as they knew it. 
It was remodeled by Herod and then destroyed by the Romans. Hmm. Honor and authority? How's that going to work? It would almost seem as if God has forgotten his promise to Zerubbabel. And we may have thoughts like that in our own hearts, too. That perhaps God has forgotten his promises to us. We read and recall scripture that reminds us of our new life in Christ, of our positions as sons and daughters of God, of our own inheritance, rewards, of his faithfulness and compassion and his loving kindness. But sometimes we look around and we get discouraged, perhaps even beaten down by the oppression that comes from sin, both in us and around us. Illness and corruption, war and conflict, strife. We come out of a trial, and what's waiting for us but another trial? Man, I didn't even catch my breath. We may feel like we have to squint to see those promises. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. But this promise in Haggai is about more than Zerubbabel. The term, my servant, in the Old Testament is one that is packed full of messianic implications. It is a title given to those in the dynasty of David, the messianic line. Interrupted by the exile, Zerubbabel marks the resumption of the Davidic line of kings who would one day welcome the arrival of Messiah. God is reversing the curse that he pronounced on Zerubbabel's grandfather. And this promise is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Born into Zerubbabel's lineage, the signet ring of honor and authority from the Father's right hand. And when we look at the arrival of Jesus, we can see the hardship of Zerubbabel, can't we? Born under foreign occupation, under the Romans, of the small and insignificant town of Bethlehem, Micah would write, too little to be among the clans of Judah. His mother, Mary, pregnant before marriage, Joseph, her fiancé, coming that close to divorcing her, placed in a feed trough at birth, a refugee to a foreign land under mass infanticide. But this lowly Jesus, in him the promises of God are fulfilled, first spiritually and one day on earth, in his suffering and death in the place of sinners, in his burial and in his resurrection, in his ascension and his coronation. The heavens have been shaken and the spiritual realm has been rattled. The thrones of rulers have been disarmed. Colossians says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Not only have they been disarmed, but the kingdom of our enemy has been defeated. The kingdom of Satan has been defeated. Hebrews says, through death, he, Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. 
and the kingdom has been defeated by confusion. 1 Corinthians 2 says, None of the rulers of this age understood, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And of course, Jesus rules the nations. Ephesians says the Father raised him, Jesus, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet. The Lord Jesus has disarmed the rulers and authorities. He has defeated our enemy. He has defeated our sin, as we will remember at the table in a few moments. And he rules above all things, now and forever. And the day is coming when all things will be brought into right alignment. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. If you do not know this Jesus, if you have not received forgiveness of sins in his name, if your sin has not been defeated, reach out to him today in repentance and receive him by faith. You are invited to everlasting life in his name, the water of life as scripture calls it. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. For us who believe, if the Lord Jesus has now, in fact, disarmed and defeated our enemy, does he now rule and reign in our lives? Are his words for wisdom and purity, his good policy, as it were, are they our joy and our delight? Do we take pleasure in complying with his word and with his will? We are called, as his chosen and loved children, to follow him and to build in faithfulness despite the oppression and the discouragement that may surround us. And it is his Holy Spirit indwelling us as the temple of God that enables us to press forward to see the fulfillment of promise in Christ, both now and in eternity. Zechariah would share these words with Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Peter would write, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you. And don't we look forward to that day when the signet ring of the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, will come in honor and authority. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the promises that we can see in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that we no longer need to struggle with our sin and with our enemy, that that has been defeated and nailed to the cross. And we thank you for the freedom that we have from the bondage of sin. We thank you for the work of Christ that we're going to remember here at your table in a few moments. Lord, if there are those here that, that are still under the oppression of sin, we ask that you would work in their hearts, bring them to repentance, and free them uh, from this oppression.
Lord, as we remember the gift of your son uh, this Christmas, we, we thank you for the new life that we can have in Christ, that we can thrive because of his good work for us. And so we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.